Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's been more than a week now since Russia invaded Ukraine. The latest developments are splashed across newspapers, TV screens, websites, TikTok, and social media at all hours of the day and night. We're all watching it unfold in real time. And it's become clear very quickly that the geopolitical, economic, and humanitarian impact of this armed conflict is causing significant ripple effects across the globe. Russia is killer, and if we don't uh, unite globally to stop this aggression, Russia will continue further. Uh, I'm an immigrant from Ukraine. My family currently is in Zaporozhye. They are in a bunker right now. Um, I just want to say that what's going on in the world right now and what we have as a political stance is very scary. On this special episode of The Eagle, we're going to focus on how it's all affecting us here in New York State and in the Capital Region. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to a special episode of The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall, and I am here now with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. We're going to focus uh, here now on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the geopolitical fallout of the situation overall in Eastern Europe. But I want to start by asking you, Casey, why should we in the capital region care about what's going on in Eastern Europe right now? I think it's fair to say that this is the most significant geopolitical development and arguably more of a geopolitical development than 9-11 or since 9-11. That is in no way to diminish the impact of 9-11, especially here in the state of New York. For the U.S., that was, of course, a, a horrible catastrophe, disruption, crime, you name it. The invasion of Ukraine by Russia has implications that take us back to the bad days of the Cold War. And I think you would have to go back uh, many decades to get to anything that's comparable. The invasion of a sovereign state unprovoked by an aggressor nation that has nuclear weapons is something that um, we haven't seen in quite a while, except, of course, for portions of Ukraine, which, uh, you know, the Crimea was invaded by uh, Russia only about a decade ago. That area has been in conflict for a long time. But this is definitely the hottest 
the Cold War has gotten in, in many decades. The implications are going to be sweeping, both in terms of economics, um, whether you're talking about the cost of fuel, which is, even as we speak, well above $100 a barrel, for inflation, for the supply chain, we, meaning we in the capital region, as well as the U.S. and in many other nations, will be living with the impacts of this invasion conceivably for a very long time. Now, specifically, let's talk about New York State. New York State has, I believe, the largest Ukrainian population. Including the capital region, which boasts, you know, hundreds of not only Ukrainian immigrants, but um, families with very close ties to Ukraine. As Pete Demola reported just a couple of days ago, these folks have been uh, agonized as they've watched what's happened to friends, to relatives, uh, you name it. Uh, it's uh, much like Ireland. It is one of those countries that immigrants feel a very, very tight bond to that can last four generations. I shouldn't single out Ireland, but whether you're talking about Italy or France or Spain or, or wherever, those, those bonds exist as well. What I did today was to take an affirmative action related to any state activity related to Russia or Putin to send a strong message where our priorities are, and they're with the Ukrainian people and the country of Ukraine, and to make sure that we are not spending any taxpayer dollars in support of propping up that regime. I want to talk about what's happening, you know, in state government. The governor made a declaration earlier this week about our relationship financially to Russia. What did she say, and what are the implications? She's placed constraints upon businesses, you know, doing trade with Russia. Um, similar to the the type of sanctions that have been placed by not only the, the U.S. federal government, but the governments of lots of other ally nations in this effort. Um, she is trying, along with the state controller, to constrain business that folks are doing with Russia. And in the case of the controller, they're exploring options for the disinvestment, for New York to disinvest in any company that uh, that certainly is a Russian corporation, but that also does significant business with Russia as well. That's another you know, potential sweeping impact. I'm not going to squander the fact that the state of New York has a larger economy than Russia. And what we do will hopefully have an impact collectively with our with what President Biden is doing, as well as other states who want to stand in solidarity. At the same time, Governor Hochul has uh, said that New York will is willing to take Ukrainian refugees as well. I think that's partly because of the ties that we were just talking about, that New York does have such a, a large Ukrainian immigrant population, and also the fact that New York has always been a state that has been willing to uh, not, not has been willing to, has been eager to take refugees, recognizing that those who come from conflict zones often prove to be people who uh, emerge as some of our greatest patriots. We have been in the newsroom as a whole, I guess, talking to folks who are still currently in Ukraine. Uh, later on this podcast, we're going to talk to Paul Grondahl, who talked to a woman who is holed up in a basement in Kiev. Um, but you and I earlier this week, uh, we had the privilege of talking to some folks, some journalists from Ukraine, uh, one in particular who's in eastern Ukraine that we've partnered with um, in the past in sort of a uh, a mentorship type relationship. Um, can you kind of introduce that segment for us? 
Yeah, a nonprofit sort of civil society group uh, about two years ago paired the Times Union up with a news gathering organization called Maya Sens in the city of Slovyansk, which is in eastern Ukraine, in the, uh, the Donetsk region that has been in the middle of the conflict. It was retaken by Ukrainian forces in 2014. It is very close to the, um, to the Russian border. We have been meeting with them virtually every couple of months all through the pandemic, talking about great mundane subjects like how do you establish a podcast that builds an audience? (laughs) How do you- A topic near and dear to my heart. I mean, you know, we're both looking to build up new audiences, to use entertainment news to capture the attention of, of young people. That kind of thing, all that good stuff that digital forward-facing news organizations are dealing with, we're just, you know, having this conversation with them through translators, largely. And the editor of My Ascends, uh, Valeri Garmash, got on the line with us on Tuesday and spoke about what it's like to be as close to the fighting as they are. As he said, it's about 70 kilometers to the east. Um, the Russian forces were, were mobilizing and moving westward towards um, Slovyansk. You know, they still had power. They still had food. They still had bandwidth. But it was just, it was remarkable to talk to him. It was a very emotional discussion. You know, you were, you were on the call. As soon as we, we wound up, the woman who was kind enough to translate for us burst into tears. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, that captured what what a lot of people in Ukraine and a lot of people who care about what's happening in Ukraine are feeling right now. Absolutely. Now we uh, have that conversation. We'll listen to it right now. If you could talk about sort of what it's been like just over the course of the last the last several weeks. Our reporters are working nonstop. They are present in all messengers, and we uh, our reporters are working by shifts. So they are uh, replying to text messages, trying to inform people on what's going on in the region uh, via different types of platforms. Is your city fully occupied? Is there unrest? Is there street fighting? I can't imagine what it would be like to send reporters out to face that kind of peril. But of course, you have been living under those types of situations for a long time now. So far, it is uh, more or less quiet in Slavyansk, if we can, uh, you know, speak about what means quietness in this particular situation but the uh, fights are going on 75 kilometers uh, out of Slovyansk uh, but of course we understand that uh, if uh, um, you know the situation uh, will not improve for better they will come closer to Slovyansk but so far it is more or less quiet so our reporters are informing non-stop what's going on and uh, our key priorities is uh, uh, the evacuation uh, trains uh, that they that the people can take and leave for of course storage of food uh, what is there what's available and where one can get it then the situation with the hospitals and the gas stations where there's still gas and where one can refill the gas to the car to drive further. 
о состоянии работы больниц, графика работы больниц, о времени комендантского часа и подобного. Если не будет store will be completely empty. Uh, so far we have light and gas and electricity, uh, which is really good, but the only problem is this uh, high-speed internet, because uh, in the region uh, there were shootings and uh, the uh, electricity, like internet cable, was damaged, so, and we were dependent on it, so like now our connection is quite bad. When you're talking about threats to life and limb, this might seem secondary, but just in terms of the financial burden, uh, peril that your organization faces, just making payroll to make sure that your staffers can pay rent, can buy groceries, um, that you can provide them with notebooks, with the equipment they need to do their work. How will your organization kind of stay financed during this time? I would imagine that the business model that you've been uh, subsisting on is now completely overturned, um, as in any time of, of great civic catastrophe. Uh, it's very complicated situation because, as you know, our financial model depended on advertising and working with business. And now uh, all of the uh, parties uh, in this equation, they are uh, have the same and uh, common goal to find the enemy who came to our land and is killing our people to fight Russia. So that's a priority for all, uh, you know, stakeholders involved. Uh, but in terms of financial stability, of course, uh, um, now our our reporters are working for the idea, as we say. Uh, we don't think about money that much, but uh, in a day, so weeks to come, of course, that will be a problem because, uh, to be honest, we don't have money to pay them now, and uh, they will not be able, you know, even to go do some shootings or buy food, as you mentioned, and just uh, do some general living supplies. This is a sensitive question, but of course, in any time of armed conflict, the ability to to tell the difference between the facts on the ground and propaganda, whether propaganda for one side or for the other, is very difficult sometimes to discern. In a time of war, uh, knowing who to believe, in other words, is, is sometimes very difficult. And even well-meaning reporters can report things that are then proven to be not true. This is a roundabout way of saying, how do you fight against either misinformation or disinformation at a time when so much is thrown into confusion? Of course, we have eight years of experience, so we know how to distinguish uh, true information versus fake or misinformation, disinformation. Uh, for example, if someone sends us the photo of the broken uh, bank machine, yeah, they say, oh, it has been ruined, it has been shot, etc. And we check it uh, and it's, uh, we find out that it was done back on January 27th. So, you know, that's not the case. So basically, we verify every piece of information we do not post anything unless it's fully verified.
And if if we talk about Russian propaganda in terms of war, uh, uh, the thing is that again uh, uh, it has been ongoing for eight years. The massive propaganda of Russian Federation against Ukraine, and our people, and including reporters, are very knowledgeable in distinguishing that. It's very easy to to see uh, the Russia's uh, uh, trade and footprint uh, in all of this, and uh, even for the civil citizens, they can see. You know, people dressed in our uniform or something, but there are very easy ways to to distinguish them from our uh, Ukrainian people. What's your message to our readers, to to my readers here in in the capital region of upstate New York, and I guess to to the American people in general? Speaking as a as a journalist from an imperiled region. Russia is evil. Uh, Russia is uh, came to Ukraine to kill our people. Russia is killer, and if we don't uh, unite globally to stop this aggression, Russia will continue further. Valerie, we are speaking at the end of what I'm sure has been a very long day for you. So I thank you very much for taking the time. I wish you and your staff only the best, and please uh, stay safe and, and stay on the job. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Casey. Thank you. For more on our coverage of the local impact of the conflict in Eastern Europe and all the other stories and issues that we cover on this podcast, head over to timesunion.com. After the break... Columnist Paul Grandal was able to reach a woman trapped in a hotel basement in Kyiv. He's going to tell us her story. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Throughout the last week, Times Union journalists have been connecting with members of the local Ukrainian and Russian communities here in the capital region to get their take on the situation. Many local residents with friends and loved ones in Ukraine and Russia say they're worried, even distraught, as they watch things unfold from afar. Uh, I'm an immigrant from Ukraine. My family currently is in Zaporozhye. They are in a bunker right now. I just want to say that what's going on in the world right now and what we have as a political stance is very scary. Rallies at the state capitol and at the university at Albany in the last week have brought hundreds outside, 
braving frigid temperatures to show support for Ukraine and a condemnation of Putin-backed Russian aggression against the nation. It's important work, but there's other stuff to be done, so drop a donation if you can, and do what you can if not uh, in a monetary capacity. Local Ukrainian and Russian Orthodox churches have been calling for prayers for peace and for the Ukrainian people. The Albany-Tula Alliance, a 30-year sisterhood between the city of Albany and the Russian city of Tula, forged after the Soviet Union split, put out a statement last week showing support for the people of both Russia and Ukraine, saying, quote, diplomacy efforts between the U.S. and the people of Russia are now more important than ever. Meanwhile, Times Union columnist Paul Grondel was looking for a meaningful way to write about the escalating conflict in his weekly piece. He told me that he was looking for a story that humanizes what's happening in places like Kyiv, where Putin-backed Russian forces have launched a number of destructive rocket attacks. He was able to connect with a Ukrainian woman named Viktoria Nikichuk, who was holed up in the basement of a hotel in downtown Kyiv trying to ride out the storm. I spoke to him about her story. Before you wrote the column, before you reached out to this woman in Kyiv, um, what were your thoughts about how you wanted to approach this, this topic from you know your vantage point here in upstate New York? I didn't know if there would really be a story for me as a columnist, but I went back in 2014 where they were dealing with an incursion from Russian-backed troublemakers, essentially. I did a lot of interviews and I tried to reach out to some of those people. I used some other contacts I had, just trying to find a way to find a very small scale human story, like everyone else was watching CNN, you know, as this was unfolding. Somebody put me in touch with this woman in a basement in central Kiev with her two daughters. And I found it was very compelling one of the great things I learned from a journalism conference that I attended was find a good story and get out of the way. I was going to try to bring in a lot of my own observations and these other stories I've been on and put in perspective. But this woman, a divorced 43-year-old woman named Victoria Nikuchuk, with her two daughters, Maria, 18, Eugenia, 11, in a basement in a hotel where she worked, hearing the bombs, knowing the Russian army is advancing. Um, it felt very much in a way to me of like the diary of Anne Frank. They're in hiding. They realize they do not have weapons. They, at any time, the army could come in with either artillery or whatever and just wipe them out. But they are holding together. There's a group of maybe a dozen of them, people who work at this hotel, uh, right in the center of the city. I, I, I know exactly where she is. I found it on a map. I know the street. And just imagine, you know, I, I talked with this with my friends. You know, what if the tanks rolled in down State Street by the Capitol? What would we do? Would you flee? Would you try to fight? Do you believe in your heart and soul that you want to defend this, whatever we call it, a democracy, our nation, our country? I mean, it's, it's amazing. This is uncharted territory since World War II. We have not seen this. It'd be like the Massachusetts National Guard storming the state of New York at the Capitol. I mean, these are their neighbors. These are, I'm sure there's, there's people who know each other and here this invading army is coming in to this country that did not provoke this attack. And, and it's just hard to fathom, but I wanted to focus in on a very minute close-up 
one woman, her two daughters, and the small group of people hiding in a basement in Kiev. Is the food going to hold out? Is the water going to hold out? They only go upstairs. They have a cook there, only goes upstairs to kind of prepare meals. They brought mattresses down to the basement. They prepared. They had three cars. You know, they were thinking about escaping. They had enough to take the 12 or so people out. And they realized there's no way out. The roads are blocked. There's miles and miles and miles of gridlock. It's just hard to fathom. It really is heartbreaking, you know. Unfathomable is the word that kept popping into my head as you were describing the situation. Now, how did you reach her? This is a woman I know randomly through the Gilderland Library, and she works for the state. She's from Poland. She's a Russian linguist and translator for the state. I met her many years ago. I still had her contact. I said, hey, do you know anyone there? And she said, well, let me check. And this woman, she went, they went to college together 20 years ago in Poland. And this woman who lives in Albany gave me her number, WhatsApp. And I tried a couple of times, nothing. I tried and there she was. It cuts out. It's a little garbled every now and then. But I spent 25 minutes on the phone with her talking about, you know, the terror that she's facing. But also what, what struck me is at least they have each other. She's got her daughters. She's got her co-workers. I mean, I, I can understand her position. At least we're together. When, when the horror comes to have people around you, rather than being by yourself in your apartment or in your basement or whatever, she's at least got a group of people. Did you have to convince her to talk to you? Since many people have been sharing their stories, she was willing to share her story, basically to let people know what's happening on the outside at a very personal human level about what it's like when somebody invades your country. Mm-hmm. You said she's in she's in her early 40s. Yeah, she's 43. So, yeah. you know, there was a good 40 ish years, maybe, you know, before she was even born that World War Two happened. And that's really I mean, a lot of people are obviously making comparisons, but she would have no experience, direct experience with World War Two. No. I mean, not many people around who do anymore. Right. That's right. It's it's a long time ago now. You know, we've been celebrating the 75 years of of the end of the war and our World War Two veterans. I enjoy interviewing them. I've been friends with some. There's not many left. But when you think about this is what she said. And this is what I think we all thought the world thought is it's not possible. Putin's not going to invade. You know, I mean, why? Why would he do this now? I think he had a calculated decision like you know, the U.S. is divided. Europe is is not solidified. But the positive part of our conversation was that she's thankful that people are paying attention, that the world is united against Putin and Russia with sanctions. You know, there's millions of refugees and uh, the world is standing up against this one tyrant. Her one message that stuck with me, she said, please don't forget me. Please don't forget us. This was a wholly unprovoked attack. They really did nothing wrong. They weren't picking a fight. They weren't itching for war. And it came onto this country. I do feel bad for the Syrian refugees, of course, for for other countries um, who face this for a long time and did not get this response from the world, to be honest. But these are, as you look at those pictures, And I think this country of 44 million is now either under siege, trying to take cover in their basement, 
handing you a gun and, and go fight the Russian army or fleeing a border, which is gridlocked. And, and then where do you go once you get there? You know, a, a crisis in Poland and uh, Hungary and Romania and Slovakia, all the neighboring countries not set up to take hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of refugees. You know, the world is more interconnected than ever. And I think people are realizing that we're paying a price too. People are fixated now on the price of the gas pump. It's gonna get worse now because the world is rising up and standing up against Putin saying, we're not gonna take your oil and your gas anymore and that's going to rise our prices so everybody is somewhat going to be at least inconvenienced but when you're in ukraine or all the neighboring countries who are being now flooded with refugees it's, it's a different level of humanitarian crisis All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Paul Grondel, and Paul Bukowski for their contribution to this episode. <laughs>